Some of you have met uh, Dennis and Susan Edwards, who have been worshiping with us off and on lately. Dennis is the Associate Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle. You may remember Northern used to be in Oak Brook and sold that piece of property and now has an office building right there along the highway. You may see it as you go along 88. And uh, Dennis began there this last fall as New Testament professor. Before that, he was, uh, he'd been a pastor for several years. He was pastor for six years at Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis and, uh, and, and is ordained as a covenant pastor. Um, as I mentioned last week, I've asked him to help with the series. We've met and shared some resources, some books and ideas, and actually Dennis is going to preach next Sunday. Uh, and today, though, he, um, he has a, uh, an excused absence. He's in uh, Washington, D.C. with his new grandson. And you're not, are you, Susan? You're here. He gets... Okay, okay, good. <laughs> anyway, he sent you his greetings as well. Um, but since uh, uh, the Edwards have moved here, Meg and I have become friends with them. And we've become, you know, there's two kinds of friends now. We're, we're actually becoming friends with them, but we're Facebook friends with them too. So, you know, we're, we're both kinds of friends. And con- combining both of those, Dennis actually sent me this this week. He says, hey, Scott Gillen, uh, this is for you. And um, uh, it's a cartoon, I don't know if you can read it, but it's charades, and it says, Substitutionary Atonement. As Leon unfurled the piece of paper, he knew he would never again play charades with ministers. So uh, uh, I was so grateful uh, to Dennis for sending that to me, and we got comments from our colleagues that I won't um, share with you. But anyway... Uh, this cartoon that Dennis sent taps into the, the complexities, the, uh, the theologies, the, uh, the varied perspectives, the, the mysteries really surrounding this, what seems like a really simple question of what happened on the cross. The simple question does have a simple answer that Christ died and forgave our sins on the cross. But as we opened up the topic last week, we saw that there are some deeper issues to look at and and some deeper issues to understand so that we can come to really appreciate the depth and the fullness, really, of this gift of salvation. This gift of salvation that has come to us with the cross event really as the key point, as as the turning point. In answering this question about the cross and how God's love, mo- God's love moves towards us, we're attempting to understand and explain what we call the atonement. The atonement. We heard it in the passage that Bob just read. We even heard it, we even sang it in one of the songs we just did. God's atonement, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It's really another simple one-word answer to our question, what happened on the cross? The atonement. <laughs> The atonement has its roots in the Old Testament and in the system of, of sacrifices and rituals for Israel. Everything that had to do with the removing of sin, that day of atonement uh, when the animals were, were, were killed, but also the, the laying on of the sins onto a goat who was sent off into the wilderness to carry away the sins from where we get that term scapegoat. And all of this sacrifice and scapegoat and everything in the temple prefigures or looks ahead to what would happen perfectly in Jesus Christ. A simple definition of the atonement is the saving work of Jesus. A a little fuller definition of atonement is this, the saving work that God did through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. And we get the the word reconcile there. To reconcile means to heal a, a broken relationship. To reconcile means bringing estranged and broken parties back together to make amends and to make reparations so that it might happen. The English word that was developed to translate the Old Testament concept actually comes from three simple words, at one meant, to be at one, at one meant. Making what was once uh, one, creation, perfect creation, and then was seriously broken by the fall into sin, bringing that back together again as one, at one meant, atonement. 
We're discovering that with all the rich biblical input and imagery for the atonement, one easy explanation is not all that easy to come up with. Because there's such a variety of, wide variety of ways that Scripture speaks of what happened on the cross, what happened in the sacrifice of Christ. Theologians over the years have called these different perspectives, they've called them models of atonement or theories of atonement. Some say they are metaphors, some just call them perspectives, some call them views, whatever. They all seem to come to try to understand this grand and sometimes mysterious truth of God. And so we're approaching and trying to learn from these three perspectives, from at least three perspectives, asking in our approach these four weeks, um, who is the subject of the atoning work of Christ? In other words, what was standing in the way of forgiveness and salvation? Certainly our sin, but the different theories deal with different parts of how God dealt with our sin. Last week, as I introduced this, uh, we looked at a perspective uh, that we called a Godward focus. That is, the work of Christ necessarily or primarily addresses a, a demand of God, a demand of God's justice. And so in this view of the God word, we, we see themes of substitution, of Christ taking our place, that in his sacrifice, uh, there was a, justice was served, that penalties were paid, and, and, and justice was, uh, was required. And in this view of a God word, we see that God is a holy God who is angry uh, and, and, and full of wrath over sin. And so God's wrath must then be appeased. And that's what happened in the cross. We found out in, in some of these views that the language of punishment and, and even the imagery of the, the court system take priority. And so the theories that we deal with here, the one that was on the charades was substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement is a, is a, a word that is used, punishment to appease God. There's other theories that are called satisfaction theories. In other words, God's justice demands satisfaction. So that's the sort of Godward perspective and uh, based on scripture and a, a view held by many. Next week, Dennis will uh, uh, pr- uh, approach another perspective that sees the problem as, uh, the problem here is, is evil, uh, as Satan. It's a Satan word focus. In other words, the death of Christ brought a, a divine victory over the power of darkness. The, the death of Christ uh, uh, led, led to victory over, over the evil that is in, in the world. And uh, uh, the, the death of Christ set us free from our enslavement to sin. Anything that talks about being setting, setting free is being free from the clutches, in a sense, the clutches of Satan. And so, uh, uh, or the verses that talk about a ransom, a ransom that has been paid, kind of feed into this view. And so we have a, the, the ransom theory is one of the views that circles around this. Another one called Christus Victor, a Latin meaning Christ is the, is the, is the victor. So it's a, a Satan word focus. Today we'll look at some of the perspectives that come from this third area, the a human word focus. That is, the atoning work of Jesus is designed to affect a change in human beings. We are the ones that need to be cleansed. We are the ones that need to be restored. We are the ones in need of being reconciled to God. So those are the three. So are you confused? Uh, my goal for us in, in looking at these um, and... Yes, there's been a few points during the week with, what was I thinking doing a series on this? But stick with me, okay? I think we're going to learn something. My goal is for us to learn from each, from each of these and to see and appreciate really the wonder of this gift, this gift that we have, this gift of, uh, of salvation, this forgiveness, this grace, and, and, and our wonder of it to be inspired and to live into this relationship. I, my goal is not just to get a, a theological truth planted in our head or to argue for the primacy of one, 
but rather for us to live more fully into this reconciled relationship with God through an active, living walk with Jesus. Here's the paragraph I put before you last week. I put it there again today, and it's in the, the outline in your bulletin for those who want to take a look at that. That there are several biblical ways, ways, models, theories, perspectives, whatever. I'm calling them ways. <laughs> there are several biblical ways in which to understand and explain atonement, the saving work of Christ on the cross. In and through them all, God moves towards us in love so that we might not only be forgiven and reconciled to him as individuals, but that the church might become a community of faith marked by grace, reconciliation, and participation in kingdom work. In other words, what we're going to do when we kind of wrap this up in a couple weeks is that uh, sometimes our tendency is to see it only personally as my sins are forgiven, I'm reconciled to God. And that is true. But because we are reconciled people, it ought to impact who we are as a church doing kingdom work now. So that's where we hope to head. But for the rest of today then, uh, or the rest of this morning, not the rest of the day, don't worry, we'll let you go, but... um, Category things pastors say that are scary. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're almost. In uh, in closing, and then you know he's got another goes another twenty minutes right there. We're going to take a little closer look at this human word perspective. There's a few different theories or models for our, for our purposes. I'm just going to kind of string together three words to sort of uh, gather them. And those the three words would be healing, uh, restoration, and reconciliation. Some healing models that speak of restored reconciliation. I could have added moral influence theory, but then I might lose you and get myself totally confused. Uh, For those of you that are interested in studying the moral influence theory, I have two words for you, independent study. But but really, healing restoration will, will do for us now as we look at some of these perspectives. This perspective looks at the cross and asks, what needed to be changed in us for forgiveness to happen? for us to be one with God again. Bruce Reichenbach is a professor at Augsburg College in Minneapolis, and he is the one who advances what's called a healing model of atonement. This, this is one of the books that Dennis and I are using called The Nature of Atonement. You can't read the small type down there. There's four, four different views in here. And he refers to this area as the, the healing view. And he explains how Scripture treats sin as sickness. Scripture treats sin as a sickness that needs to be healed. And that actual sickness, even actual sickness, is a result of sin. Sometimes. Sometimes it's a punishment. Now, we've got to be careful there. That sin, being, getting sick doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. But because of sin in the world, we, Ill, illness is there. I just was texting, sorry, during the offertory, finding out that my daughter-in-law had to call in sick to her church this morning because she's sick and my daughter is home with a sick kid. We know that sickness affects uh, our life. And they aren't sick because of their sin, but they're affected because we live in a, a broken world, a world broken by sin. So there's physical sickness and spiritual sickness are kind of tied together sometimes in Scripture. It's more than physical illness, uh, that physical illness is, is a result of sin in the world and diseases that are in the world because of a broken world. Poor selfish choices sometimes lead to sickness as well. Spiritual and physical sickness are tied together in this model. And scriptures that reveal God as healer are noted in this approach. In Exodus 15, 26, God says, I am the Lord who heals you. 
And God as healer then longs to heal us and restore us to wholeness. God longs for our health and our, our wholeness. And Reichenbach uses the concept of shalom. You know the word shalom, it's a, a common Hebrew greeting. And it's translated as peace. But not just peace like uh, no warfare, but a sense of well-being. All, all is well. The, the oneness that God desires to come back after the brokenness happened after the, the, the fall into sin is a shalom. All is well. God is at work to bring us back to a place of shalom. And he says that that comes as a result of, of the healing that comes with the forgiveness of sin. God is a healer who addresses the condition and the result, the sin and the sickness. We hear in this, this, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord of my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. The condition, sin is forgiven. The result, the diseases are healed. Another important scripture text um, is the one that Kayla read during the, uh, in the middle of our, our singing time from Isaiah 53. This is where the name is given to uh, this unknown person in Old Testament days was called the suffering servant. And then, of course, now we see that Christ becomes that suffering servant. Let me just read part of it again and listen for these images of sickness and of pain and of healing and of shalom. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, and the word here in the Hebrew is shalom. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The servant, the suffering servant, is a prophecy of Jesus. The suffering servant suffers for our sin, bears our pain, pain, and takes it away. Now, speaking of Jesus, the support for this view doesn't just come from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have this image of Jesus as the great physician, the great physician, much of whose ministry was a ministry of healing. You read through the Gospels, and what's Jesus doing a lot of the time? He is healing. Apparently, if you combine all the Gospels, nearly 20% of the material that combine Gospels is committed to the healing ministry of Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, nearly a third of Mark's gospel is committed to the healing ministry of Jesus. And I think we need to see then and step back and go, this is more than just a nice thing he did for people back then. Well, it was kind of a good little, you know, he healed people and that made people interested and then they could get to the real spiritual stuff. For him, it was they were deeply connected. The sickness of the people is deeply connected to the, the sickness of, of sin as well. In what I have sometimes called his purpose statement in Luke 4, Jesus speaks of a work of healing and restoration. This is where he stands up in the synagogue in chapter 4 of Luke's in his hometown of Nazareth. One of my favorite stops in our visit to the Holy Land a couple years ago was the reconstructed synagogue in, in, in Nazareth. And there's a little table with a scroll on it. And I picture Jesus picking it up there 
and reading to the people. And he picked up the, the reading for that day was from Isaiah. And he's, Jesus stands up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Uh, he sent me to set to the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All these things of setting people free and healing blind and setting oppressed free were all part of what Jesus, this great physician, came to do. And even a little bit later in that text, uh, when the people are getting a little agitated about this, they say, when that, that's, this is the prophet has no honor in his hometown thing because the people didn't believe him. He said, he said, you're probably going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. So he even uses that image of himself, a physician, in this same passage. So healing comes. But what about the cross? What, what actually happens on the cross when we come at it from this perspective? I think we have to ask the question, why, why did Jesus have to die? If God is all-powerful, couldn't he come up with a plan that didn't require the death of his son? Reichenbach answers that the answer is in the virulence, virulence, not a word I use often, virulence of our disease. In other words, our disease is so bad. And the ultimate end of the worst disease is what is death. We are dying, and in a sense it took death in order to conquer it. I'm just going to read you just a little bit from, from his book. He says, Atonement at its deepest rhythms necessitates that the great physician take on our sin and suffering as the only way to finally address the human predicament and to restore us to shalom with God, with ourselves, and with our community. Until the physician disposes of the sin and sickness, it is on him in its virulence leading to his death, but the good news is that death is not the end for Christ or for us. So what needed to be changed in us? Sin, sin, sickness, and rebellion needed to be healed and forgiven. We needed to be reconciled to God and to be back into shalom with him. And Jesus took away that sin and healed that, healed that sin on the cross. Another take on this human word perspective came from one of the original Swedish covenanters, Paul Peter Waldenstrom. If you've been around the covenant long, or if you've had to bend at North Park, whatever, you've probably heard this guy's name. We just call him P.P. P.P. Waldenstrom, but um, a pastor and a theologian, very influential in the early days of the covenant. In fact, when Megan and I were in Sweden several years ago, some friends were taking us to someplace in Stockholm. They said, wait a minute, we need to take a little detour. And they turned, and we went down a long road and drove into a cemetery and saw his grave. So I've been to the grave of P.P. Waldenstrom. So um, anyway. But if you've been um, in the covenant for very long, or even in our church in the last several months, I know I have quoted a few times back in our Exploring God series this question that we ask here in the covenant where is it written? Where is it written? It refers to our honoring of the Word of God, the centrality of the Word of God is one of our key affirmations. Um, it speaks to our commitment to the Scriptures, just where is it written? It speaks to our belief in the reliability, the authority of the Word of God in all matters of faith, doctrine, conduct. 
It's also a call uh, to, that we give to ourselves of when somebody says something we, and we want to challenge, we go, well, where is it written? And we go to the scriptures to read again and seek discernment as we read and as we listen to discernment as we come with it together. So where is it written is a, is, is a key rallying point for us as people in the Evangelical Covenant Church. You might have known about that question, but did you know that question was first asked by our new friend, P.P. Wallenstrom? And you know that he asked that question when he was asked about the atonement. I actually forgot this until this week in my study again. I had to kind of brush up on my Waldenstrom. It's been a long time since seminary. Um, a really long time. Um, but it was the summer of 1870 in Sweden. It was a time of renewal of movements within Sweden. Um, and uh, at that time in, in Europe, Western Europe and Northern Europe, the penal substitutionary atonement theory was the model of choice. Uh, for a majority of Christians at that time. This, this Godward view that sees Christ paying the penalty for our sins. Uh, uh, this view uh, that, w- that Christ paid the penalty so that God's justice would be satisfied and God's wrath would be uh, averted and appeased and turned aside. And Waldenstrom was at a gathering of pastors when one of them spoke up and said among a group of pastors, how glorious it is that God is reconciled. How glorious it is that God is reconciled, to which P.P. Waldenstrom responded with the now famous quotation, what do you say? Where is it written? <laughs> yes, he said, where is it written? Where is it written that God needed to be reconciled? This led Waldenstrom to two years of study, digging into scripture to try to figure out this question. And he said he could not find one passage that said that God was reconciled. Yes, there's information about penalty and substitution and and, and justice as mentioned, but when you get down to it, nowhere could he find anywhere that said that God was reconciled. And his conclusions all centered around the unchanging love of God. Or as we have just sung, the never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love of God. He couldn't get past that. He concluded that not only that God is all loving, but that nothing changed in God in order to forgive us and reconcile us. That was the key point there. Nothing changed in the nature of God. And not only that, God, not only that God is consistently all loving, but that His very nature is love and He cannot change. Again, we heard it in this morning's scripture reading from 1 John. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Waldronson concluded then that the fall of humankind into sin did not change God's attitude to man from love to wrath. And the atonement did not then turn his wrath back into love. God did not need to be reconciled. God did not need to be changed. He was consistently loving. We needed to be reconciled to God. And unable to do that on our own, we were reconciled by Jesus' death on the cross. In Jesus, our sins are blotted out. They were taken away. And this made us stand before God as righteous again and able to fully be reconciled with God at one, at one meant. In explaining this reconciliation that happens, Waldensum also speaks of the blood of Christ. 
It's necessary for us also to answer the question, what happened on the cross? When we talk about what happened on the cross, we need to talk about the reality of his blood. Yes, Jesus died, but he died in that he also poured out his blood. This is imagery that is uncomfortable to those who have been outside the whole Judeo-Christian approach to things. But it was very much, very much a part of the sacrifice of the Jewish people and anticipated what would happen in Jesus. But it's not just ritual. You see, Jesus, the perfect... Um, um, let me back up just a minute. We need to look back to the Old Testament, the shedding of blood and the sacrificial animals here to kind of get some perspective. The, 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 the animals shed their blood for the forgiving of the sins of the Israelite, but it was a temporary shedding of blood. It was, a, it, was, it was looking ahead. You see, blood did not so much, it, it meant death. It meant death of the animal, uh, but it also meant life. Life is in the blood. I think that's what's important. There's, there's life in the blood. The life is in the blood. So in the sacrifice of an animal, and um, then, and perfectly and permanently now in the death of Christ, the life that was poured out in the death of one meant that there was life for another. The life was poured out in the death of one, but it meant life for another. It meant life and forgiveness for those on whose behalf it was shed. The blood of the animals shed on behalf of the people of Israel, and it gave life to them temporarily. The blood of Jesus was shed, and it meant life for those on whose behalf he died, and that is us. Jesus, the perfect high priest, Scripture calls him, Jesus, the perfect high priest, poured out his own blood to forgive our sins. When John the Baptist saw Jesus in the first chapter of John's Gospel, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb that was slain, and we see the Lamb that was slain even in the imagery in Revelation, the final book of Scripture. The lamb shed his blood that there would be life for us. The lamb sheds the blood, forgives, and takes away our sin or cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Reconciled to the unchanging, always loving God. In that forgiveness, in the shedding of blood comes forgiveness and the relationship is restored with ongoing restoration and healing that comes. You could hear it somewhat in the song that we just sang. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, there it is again. Can it be? Hallelujah. I want to finish by just looking at what does this mean? How does this perspective on the cross impact us now? There are certainly elements of the the Godward focus last week that, that, that are true. This doesn't defeat those. But what do we learn from this perspective? Take from the perspective of God uh, changing something in us. What does it say to us? How does this perspective impact us now? First of all, there's the absolute assurance of God's unchanging, unconditional love. Overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, (laughs) leaves the 99 kind of love, to use the imagery for that song. God hates sin, but he loves us so much he went to great lengths to forgive and remove our sin. 
Or as my friend Pastor Peter Hong said, God is not after you. God is after you. (laughs) Get the difference? God is not after you. God is after you in his unchanging love. And so I think there's reassurance for us of that never-changing love of God. I think secondly, God is the truth in this is that God desires shalom for us. He desires our, our flourishing. He desires our well-being. He doesn't come to mess up our life. He comes to bring this restoration, reconciliation, and wholeness. And to long for that is a, is a real human emotion. And when we line our lives with God, God takes us to that place of genuine shalom, of experiencing his peace, even when the circumstances may not be ideal. Thirdly, I think that I draw from this view also is that Jesus has literally given us life. Now, that word literally, we've overused that, right? Like, I was literally freaking out the other day. What's the difference between freaking out and literally freaking out, right? Right? So, but I mean it here. Jesus has literally given us life. We need to move from just this truth, doctrine, models of atonement, what's Pastor Scott talking about in our heads, to reality in our hearts and our daily relationship of interacting with him. He gave physical, shed physical blood to clean us up and to give us Genuine life, spiritual life, and in this life, a physical life of shalom. And it's real. It's real life that Jesus gives, not just in our head, but gets lived out in how we live. I come back to that statement I made earlier, and we'll each week, that there are several ways to look at this, several ways in which to understand and explain the atonement, the saving work of Christ. Well, you know that I show my hand a little bit here in this next part and say that in and through them all, God moves towards us in love so that we might not only be forgiven and reconciled to him as individuals and live a genuine life of faith in Christ, but that the church might become a community of faith marked by grace, reconciliation, and participation in kingdom work. Let's keep our minds open to what we can learn from the word and as we uh, listen to these different views. But let us take us that deeper place of a full appreciation, but even moving beyond deep appreciation to living fully into our walk with Christ who has died for us, forgiven us, and has literally given us life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in you and that you are as alive right now as you were when you walked this earth. And you are present, you are attentive to who we are. And you are continually pouring out towards us the love of God as you love us and as you lead us, as you forgive us, as you care for us, and as you long for our shalom, the gift that you brought. As we study these different views and look at these perspectives, Lord, may we not focus on that which divides us, but that which draws us together. And ultimately, it is you, Lord Jesus. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.